So around this time of the year, I like to uh, turn on the TV and watch some college basketball. It's called March Madness. Well, it's April now, but more than 60 teams are invited to compete in a one-and-done tournament. It's especially fun, dramatic, and exciting when a lower-ranked team somehow keeps it close and even defeats the superior competition. In sports lingo, those last portions of such games are called clutch situations or crunch time. Time's running out, the pressure's high. If fans are gasping and tense, we have to wonder what the players are feeling. I think sports are popular because often they're like allegories with parallels in our lives. Maybe you've been blessed with great potential and ability. You're the team captain, but you play terribly for most of the game. Life. What will you do as time runs out? Or let's say you're not exactly the leader type. You've been sitting at the sidelines, keeping the bench warm. But the stars are exhausted or fouled out. Now you have to step in and step up. How will you make a difference? As we finish our study of 1 Samuel today, we'll get to see something like this happen in chapter 31. Legends and legacies are at stake in pressurized situations. As the Israelites and the Philistines clash, the cameras focused on a former winner who becomes a loser and a group of nobodies who become somebodies. So let's read the passage together. 1 Samuel 31. And if you're using the Pew Bible... It's in page 210. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua, Saul's sons, The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead. He also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled. And the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. 
Then they put on his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Javesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Javesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Javesh and fasted seven days. In a terrible time in Israelite history, we observe Saul's failures and Javesh Gilead's heroics. And from them, we learn two principles to build our own spiritual legacy. One, live for God now so you'll die for him later. Live for God now so you'll die for him later. That's verses 1 to 7. Two, honor the king of heaven and the king of earth. Honor the king of heaven and king on earth. Verses 8 to 13. First, live for God now so you'll die for him later. So let me explain this thing before I talk about this principle. The Philistines overwhelmed the Israelites in battle. We saw back in chapter 28, verse 4, that the two sides camped at Shunem and Mount Gilboa, respectively. At first, they probably met somewhere between those two locations, but eventually the stronger Philistines, their army drove Saul's weaker army back. Now, they were superior to Israel in many ways, including military technology. They have archers. We learn in chapter, uh, chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, verse 4, that they also have chariots and horsemen. You'd need a steady and strong leader in such times. But Saul's nothing of the sort. When he first saw the enemy, he was afraid. His heart trembled greatly, we read in chapter 28, verse 5. And after he sought the medium at Endor, it got worse. He was now dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. Recall the prophecy that the Lord will deliver Israel with Saul into the hand of the Philistines. He and his sons will join Samuel in afterlife. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. It would have been better if he had never gone to Endor. He would have been better off not knowing the outcome. But he did know. He knew going in that it was a lost cause. During the battle, his sons die before he makes his own demise. Of the three, there's Jonathan until the bitter end. Faithful to God. Devoted to his family, true to his friend, loyal to his people. I imagine Jonathan fought the Philistines bravely, just, at, just like when we first saw him back in chapter 13. And Saul could not have asked for a better son. Now there are some MIAs here, missing in action. Abner, the commander of Saul's army, somehow escaped. He'll be back in chapter 2 of 2 Samuel. 
with Ishbosheth, another son of Saul. We're not quite sure why Ishbosheth didn't participate in the battle. Perhaps he was an illegitimate son, like the sons of Rizpah, hidden away and unqualified for the throne. So we ought to sort of reconcile this with First Chronicles 10.6, that it says all his house died together. So it probably refers to legitimate heirs in First Chronicles 10. So in one fell swoop, the house of the first king of Israel comes crashing down. Saul joins that infamous list of men who took their own lives. The dubious distinction to have alongside Abimelech and Samson. But at least Samson's name is listed in that famous chapter of Hebrews 11 that contains great people of faith. We also read in, read in Judges chapter 16 that the number of Philistines that Samson killed at his death were more than he killed in his lifetime. In terms of legacy, Saul's closer to Abimelech. If you remember that story, at Devez, Abimelech was fatally wounded when a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and crushed his skull. Gruesome story. With his last breaths, he asks his armor bearer to kill him. So both Abimelech and Saul asked their armor bearers to deliver the coup de grace, to finish them off, lest they're disgraced by their enemies. Only Saul's guy refused to do it, so Saul takes matters into his own hands, commits suicide. The armor-bearer follows his example. We'll see how this news of Saul's death reaches David when we start 2 Samuel. But first, the news reaches the nearby cities of Israel, both in the Promised Land and the Transjordan region. It's a great calamity for God's people. They deserted their homes and fled for their lives. The consequences of ungodly leadership are frightening. So that's the sad end of Saul. What can we learn from it? As I've said already, live for God now so you'll die for him later. I've distilled this principle not only from 1 Samuel 31, but also from 1 Chronicles 10, which I mentioned already. So keep your finger in today's passage and turn there to 1 Chronicles 10. And as you go there, let me remind you of a wonderful blessing of studying the Bible cover to cover. Very often you'll discover that scriptures interpret scriptures. I can benefit from a later spirit-inspired writer commenting on an earlier spirit-inspired writer. In this specific case, we have the narrator of the Chronicles taking material from the Samuel narratives. And though he skips over most of Saul's biographical accounts, he basically repeats 1 Samuel 31 in 1 Chronicles 10. Then he adds this note at the end in verses 13 and 14. 
So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. This is a perfect summary of Saul's tragic life. He lived unfaithful to the Lord. He did not listen to God or seek him with his heart. He consulted a medium for guidance. All these acts of disobedience piled up high before toppling over. Or we could say his downward spiral finally led him down to the grave. And look again in verse 14, still in First Chronicles 10. Who killed Saul? The Philistines? Saul himself? Those were just the means. God ultimately killed him. Saul did not give his life to God, so God took it from Saul. Saul did not live for God, so he did not die for him either. Not sure whether Saul was saved or not. The Bible is not 100% clear on the matter. But I have no reason to be confident that he's in heaven. I have little assurance. And we know this kind of feeling. On one hand, we know those genuine believers that have consistently walked the, walked the talk. They've done it for so long that you feel certain that they're saved, really, truly saved. But then there are those professing Christians who leave much doubt and worry in our hearts. Saul would be in that latter doubtful category. And his suicide, though it's not the unforgivable sin, raises even more serious questions. If only Saul lived for God and died for him, those questions would never be asked. Let me address now those who do not know the Lord. I pray you avoid the poor example of Saul. I hope that there's no question later concerning where you are after you die. Live for God now so you'll die for him later. Don't have us searching frantically in your mortal life for signs of eternal life. This is a matter of life and death, heaven and hell. Now, perhaps you're thinking, Song, I got to do some living for myself right now. Saul's an extreme case. I'll just turn around my life down the road. There's plenty of guys who messed up everything but yielded to God just before they died. When it's crunch time, I'll be clutch when it comes to holiness. You know, like that thief who was crucified with Jesus but got saved. God's mercy will be there for the taking at the end, right? Well, I'm certainly not going to minimize God's sovereign grace. He can save anyone at any time. But the Lord's ways are those secret things that belong to him. Our clear, revealed responsibility is to consider our eternal destiny now. 
Ecclesiastes 7.2 teaches us, Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. He's talking about funerals, remembrance of death. We may not like Saul, we may not die like Saul, but death is waiting for all of us at the end. And unlike a sports event, there's no game clock or referee that will tell you exactly how long you have left. Also, know that the conversion of someone like the thief on the cross is rare. I do not question that it was genuine. Of course not. Look at the one making the promise. I only question whether it happens often. I like David Guzik's commentary, quote, Here is something truly remarkable, a deathbed conversion. It may barely be said to be the only biblical example of a last-minute salvation. There's one deathbed conversion in the Bible so that no one would despair, but only one so that no one would presume. Let me repeat. One deathbed conversion so that no one would despair, but only one, so that no one would presume. To those who are waiting to live for God later after you had your fun, do you really want to risk it? You may not have a tomorrow. That gap between life and afterlife may be smaller than you think. In a blink of an eye, you could go from living without God to dying without God. The wisest choice you'll ever make is to come to Christ as soon as possible. Maybe even today, this hour. Don't put this off any longer. Pastoral experience also teaches us that we should live for God now, so we'll die for him later. Here's some wisdom from Charles Spurgeon. He had this to say about last, uh, about lost souls in their final days. Quote, the poor head may be so distracted with pain that the mind may not be able to catch the idea of what faith in Christ really is. Mental capacity may wholly fail in that dreaded hour. The risk is so great that none but the fatally foolish will postpone till then the preparation for the king's coming. End quote. That's why the gospel message is so urgent. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. Today could be the day you choose life. Today could be the day salvation comes to your house. Today could be the day of second birth so that you'll never have to face second death. If your life's a book, there will be the final chapter. Unlike Saul, I hope that all the pages will show that you've lived for God and that you died for him. So let's say I have your attention. How do we exactly live for God? What does that even mean? Christians talk about it all the time. We're living for God. And this is when we need to talk about the gospel. The good news. 
It's not that we can live a perfect life with our own efforts. But what's common among all the saints is this. They recognize the gravity of their sin. They repent and trust in the saving work of God. Do you understand the gravity of sin? It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. By no means does our Lord, the righteous judge, clear the guilty at that judgment. We're all guilty of breaking God's laws, both in part and as a whole. In thought, speech, and actions, we refuse to submit to God. As some of you know from the way of the master evangelism training, the Ten Commandments reveal that we're covetous in our thought, adulterers with our eyes, murderers with our speech. So that means we may not die like Saul, but we certainly do live like him, at least at one point or another. Before it's too late, before you die in your sins, repent and believe that Jesus is all that he claims to be. He's the Son of God, fully divine, who came to earth fully human. He lived a perfect life and fulfilled the law, yet the law keeper gave his life for us, the law breakers. Like Saul, we deserve to hang in shame because we disobeyed God. The body of Christ hung from the cross at Calvary, even though he obeyed God. He did that for us, out of love. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. After paying for our sins, Jesus rose from the grave on the third day. He proved his victory over death. Then he ascended to heaven. He'll return someday to judge all. But whoever hears his word and believes in the Father who sent him has everlasting life. He shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus has done all that's required to enter everlasting life, all that's required of us is to turn from ourselves and our ways and turn to Christ in faith. We cannot work for heaven or deserve to be accepted by God. God gives us his son as a gift, and we are to receive him humbly. And that decision will change everything. It changes how we view death. We're released from the fear of death, That will only be a passage to heaven, Jordan to the promised land. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, those who believe in him, though they die, they shall live. It also changes how we view life. As Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now if we live, we live to the Lord And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. 
Please live for God now so you'll die for him later. Now, as we return to 1 Samuel 31, you may ask, is there a positive model of living for God? Well, this book actually, or 1 Samuel, ends in a up note, upbeat. We have more than one example. We have a group of them. And that leads us to the second principle, honor the king of heaven and the king of earth. So in the second half of 1 Samuel 31, we see the aftermath of this battle. The Philistines have won. They confirm the death of Saul and his sons. The enemies of God's people celebrate their triumph in their land among their people. But to them, this was not just a human warfare. They sincerely believed that the Philistine gods prevailed over the God of Israel. In their minds, Dagon and Ashtoreths are stronger than Yahweh. They have the armor and the corpses of their king and their princes to prove it. As a taunt and as an intimidation tactic, they placed the bodies of Saul and his sons in Bethshan within the boundaries of Israel. Here's a little background on Bethshan or Bethshan. It's a town in the territory of Issachar that the Lord gave to Manasseh, the tribe of Manasseh. But the tribes of Joseph had trouble possessing it and the nearby cities because of those stubborn Canaanites, and they had iron chariots. It's most likely that these Canaanites were in league with the Philistines. Together, they were relishing in the demise of Israel. We read in 2 Samuel 21.12 that they publicly disgraced the corpses. A better translation of street there would be open square, as we see in the New American Standard Bible. So with this one irreverent act, God's foes do two things. Dishonor the king of heaven and dishonor the king of Israel. And this is when the people of Jabesh Gilead or Jabesh enter, or rather they re-enter. In about one week, valiant men from there will honor their king of heaven and their king of earth. And what they accomplish is remarkable. It's remarkable because up to this point, Jabesh is not known as a breeding ground for heroes. Before this mission, they were either passive or in need of rescuing themselves. Two passages are relevant. In Judges 21, they failed to show up to an important national assembly. So 12,000 men were sent to punish them for their sin of omission. Not a good first impression for readers of Israelite history. The second time we hear about Jabesh Gileads in 1 Samuel 11, this time they're attacked not by the fellow Israelites from the west, they're attacked by foreigner Ammonites from the east. They were just about to bow and serve Nahash, but then saw the newly anointed and proclaimed king unites Israel and saves Jabesh. 
So up to this point, Jabesh has been punished or rescued. Now in their third appearance in our Bibles, we see them here in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. All of a sudden, they're making history. No longer are they absent from action or cowering in fear. They arise, travel about 13 miles in the dark. They retrieve the bodies of Saul and his sons and bury them properly and mourn for them in a week-long fast. Burning was not a traditional Israelite custom, but they probably used that method because the bodies were so bent out of shape at this point, the flesh so mutilated and putrefied by now. It was the best way for them to honor their fallen king. David later in chapter 2 of 2 Samuel has nothing negative to say against them when he meets them. Their courage here reminds us once more that Saul did at one point possess great potential. When he was compelled by the Spirit of God, he did great things. There were some good deeds he did early, yielding fruit late. Saul's boldness then emboldens Javesh now. The king's encouragement put courage in their men. Saul once spared them from shame in life. Here they'll spare him from shame in death. They honor their king on earth by lowering him to the ground. Next, they lift up their cries to the king of heaven. I'll end with two applications of this principle, one to consider this week and the other to practice right away in a few minutes. First, as you go home, please think about how we ought to honor our earthly rulers. We can complain all we want about our president, governors, and other authorities. Perhaps you think they're as bad as Saul or even worse. But there's a way to follow God's command to respect them. David did that under Saul's reign, even if that meant becoming a fugitive. Choice men of Jabesh risked their lives to honor their king. Surely we can do more than sit here and vent. How about we start with 1 Timothy 2, 1-2, making supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. So next time you open up a browser or a newspaper and read about political leaders and see their names, close your eyes and say a word of prayer for them. Maybe breathe first, right? And here's the second application. It's one of those if so, then how much more arguments. If an entire city found some good to remember and commemorate in Saul, then how much more should we, the citizens of heaven, remember and commemorate Christ? If one can search and find something praiseworthy in Saul, as fallible as he is, there's no question we can find reasons to honor Jesus, who died for us.
and purity and holiness. Christ is the righteous, holy one and the just. He is good and he does all things well. All of our Heavenly Father's ways are perfect, great, and marvelous, and whatever He does, the Son does in like manner. He is the Lamb without blemish, without a spot, without sin, without deceit in His mouth. And for our sakes, He became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's consider these truths as we come before the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Lord, death is all around us. And we thank you that we got this chance to think about it once more this morning. But Lord, there will be other reminders. People around us will die. People are dying right now. And many are dying without Christ, your son. We're thankful that many of us in this room have professed Christ and there's assurance in our hearts that we'll go to heaven. Pray that that would motivate us to live for you now as our destiny is set. Help us to live valiantly. Help us to live bravely by faith. Lord, give us also a burden for the lost, those who do not know you, how they live without you, away from you, against you. Pray that you give give us a burden for them and help us to show what it is to live for you, how that is the better way. And as we remember at this time, the sacrifice of your son, that perfect example of living for the Father and dying for the Father. May we imitate your Son in our life of living for you. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.